There we go. Hello. I have exited host mode, whatever that means. Hi, everybody. Hey, there's some friendly little Matt smiling. What a delight. God, I see why people say I'm like Sam Hyde. But they are, there are only a few, like, heads you can have, you know? If you're, like, a white male of a certain age, there's only so many heads you can have because you either get fatter with age or you get cadaverous, and that affects whether or not you get a beard. And that also affects whether or not your hair falls out. It's like you only get a couple of options, and then whether or not your eyes uh, go bad, you know? They're a little trapped within structures, and so there's only so many variations on the theme. I've only got the one red tracksuit. I look like a mad person. This person's British. Hello. Top of the morning. Top of the morning to you. Uh, sure, I would talk uh, aliens with you and Will. I don't know when you guys are recording, uh, but if you want me on, uh, I'll do it. No, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm I think I've reached the point of acceptance with everything. If it goes, it'll go because it's a distraction or something, not because I need to make some sort of statement. Besides, I like this little quaff thing that happens. It's the last dying embers of this promontory, like Klingon bird of prey of hair that's slowly being weathered by the blasts of the USS Enterprise's photon torpedoes. Star Trek reference for you guys. Yeah, man, Ventura, if he's going to do it, have fun with it. But like I said, put more of that energy closer to your life. Don't put too much of it in the presidency, because it matters a lot less than it used to. Uh, although, we have to temper that knowledge with the fact that I've been thinking more about the Democratic Party, and its structural integrity is incredibly weak. Uh, it is exemplified by Biden. I mean, in a certain looked at a certain way, every presidential candidate ends up being like the avatar of the party that it represents, depending on how, you know who won in the battle to make it up. Uh, and so, like Trump is now the Republican Party. He is. He was as soon as he was nominated, and now he's synonymous with it in all of its uh, like electoral uh, strengths and weaknesses, and its like political mind, its 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 value system, its its abstraction level. It's all there. That Biden's the same way, and the proof of that is in the fact that the, the, under the pressure of Bar Bernie's uh, uh, threat to them, they weren't able to coalesce around a um, a agreed upon alternative that because they always had the numbers within the Democratic coalition, but what they didn't have was hello Alana, what they did not have was a coherent cultural block that could express that preference like in a coordinated fashion. Uh, like, they liked who they liked because they were parts of, like, distinct uh, demographic slices of the pie. Uh, and that put them in conflict with other ones. So they were never going to group around anybody. And Biden was the worst of them in, in long-term sense uh, because of how, how vulnerable he was, how alien, anathema he was to the left, uh, how genuinely, you know, mental, mentally degenerated he is, uh, and... Uh, how many skeletons he's got in his closet. But the thing is, he was, he was the guy that the largest subgroup of Democratic voters uh, had invested in. Because basically what had happened is that uh, the 
the, the electorate, the Obama coalition shattered, right, after Obama was a horrible president. And then all the comp- component parts of the coalition started to, like, reassemble in different relationships to one another as the party moved on in the aftermath of, you know, the, the, the first the, uh, nervous breakdown of the, of the Sanders-Clinton uh, battle and then, fi- and then the just stunning defeat of Hillary that just knocked everyone off of their ken and their idea of what the world was. And so the, the result of that shock, both the, the, the slow-term material reality of Obama's recovery being a sham that mostly uh, uh, made people's lives worse if they weren't very wealthy, uh, and then the symbolic uh, uh, trauma, the once-in-a-moment symbolic trauma of all of it being pierced by Trump becoming president, it shattered the coalition. And then it reassembled along certain axes. And uh, the white segment, basically, uh, who respond to different, you know, at a symbolic level, a different symbolic level than like black voters do to these things because their emotional ties are lighter. Because like Republicans and Democrats is literally life or death for black people because that is how in their lifetimes the parties have played out. Uh, it's not as life and death for white people, so they can take or leave things. Which is why when it came down to it, and because of this, the specific fact that, you know, Obama was the first black president. When it came back to like reassemble this coalition to defeat Bernie, a big a, a chunk of that had gone to Bernie and was now being assembled with the pieces he already had and new pieces that could have overwhelmed them. They had to get everyone back on board, but the only grouping that had not been fatally alienated from the Obama era uh, uh, Democratic Party and needed to be like massaged back in were like uh, black voters in the South, older black voters in the South like the boomers, the black boomers, basically, uh, who had a different uh, emotional connection, a different level of emotional investment in the Democratic Party than the white electorate did. And as a result, they had to go to that level, and uh, it's it's Biden or Bernie, and everyone knew that Bernie wasn't an option. And so that just displays, they had to give, think of how many levels of symbolic, um, like, moral justification for the Democratic Party as it exists did they jettison to pick Biden. They've just incinerated their entire conception of themselves as a party of feminism and of the party of Me Too, the party of, of women who've been aggrieved by, uh, by men in the workplace and in the marketplace. Because of course, you know, what happens at home is, is not our purview because uh, we've identified all the stuff only along the axis of its relationship to the market. Um, now they've destroyed that. 40 years of work, dawn the drain. Uh, I mean, to younger uh, black voters who are more aware of Biden's actual record, they've alienated them, too. Uh, Latinos who connect uh, Biden to the Obama era and the, the massive deportation, at least, you know, the Latinos who consider those salient issues, alienated from them, too. Like, when this, this reassembling of the Democrats is going to be smaller and more fragile than any Democratic electoral coalition since... In terms of fragility, maybe like 1980 or something? Like, I don't know, 88? Like before the final fracture of like the, the shattering of the Solid South? It's an incredibly weak uh, uh, a candidate. That, but the thing is, is his candidacy shows that the party, at a level of like identification with it as an institution, is also incredibly weak. And the right pressures could destroy it. And so there might be an electoral path, among other paths, 
don't, everyone shouldn't take it, but people in a position to do good in it should take it, that could genuinely see the Democratic Party shatter Whig-style in the ne- relatively near future. And, and, and then, like, the proof of that in, like, one capsule form is their candidate. A strong party would not have that candidate. Because we know what degree of control the Democratic Party has over the process, from the DNC rule book to the way they do the caucuses and, and uh, uh, elections to their uh, control of an of a entire uh, uh, news network's uh, uh, line. That is a degree of power that should have been enough and was enough to keep an, people off of Bernie's side, but it was not enough to keep any one signal idea of what the Democratic Party was alive in the minds of enough people of different demographic subgroups to, uh, to defeat Bernie. They had to discard all of it, drop a bunch of levels of symbolic meaning, uh, which means that they have alienated the party. Like, I, women are, a lot of these liberals, I'm telling you people, a lot of these liberals who are pretending to be mad about Biden now uh, are being disingenuous, sure, because they want to make sure Bernie doesn't get back in there, but they're not going to be happy to vote. I mean, the ones who cash a check don't carry their way, but the ones who are, like, having to go vote, they're not happy about voting for Biden. And the thing is, it's like that process of alienation from the party has happened to everyone. It's just, it happens at a different rate depending on your material conditions. If you start as totally identified with the Democratic Party as, like, a left party or the party of decency or morality you will over time see that dedication re- reduced by their actual performance. But the friction comes from their failure to perform and your material conditions. If you start off pretty high, you're relatively uh, alienated. If you start off low, like most millennials and young people do because they never even got any of this lucre that their parents and grandparents did, then it starts very low and it just gets lower. And so that was the two battles, the battle between, the, the demographic battle of the 2016 election was basically between two groups of people who had an instinctive uh, identification as the Democrats as the good guys, the moral party, the one whose policies would lead to something better than the other party, in a two-party system, which is the one we have, but their faith in that, like their faith in its, its institution is legitimate. Their, their, their emotional uh, uh, investment in it is an institution. Here's the millennials and the younger, here's the older. And like, I'm sure black when black black older voters is theirs is lower because their material conditions in general are lower, but it's still higher than black younger ones. So it was negotiating this gap that was always a problem for Bernie because they control those people are uh, because these people they're invested enough in the Democrats that that investment it goes to uh, extending goodwill to all Democratic office holders, including liars. And also goodwill to, or good uh, uh, faith to the entire network that parrots the Democratic Party line. So this is not this is already a system in, under pressure internally, and then also pressure from material conditions changing. And material conditions are getting even worse uh, in a drastic sense, which means the pressure of legitimacy is only going to compound. So, like, these liberals, the ones who are up here, right? Uh, one of the reasons they're up here is because of stuff like the Democrats were the ones who were outraged about uh, sexual assault during the Kavanaugh hearing. Well, now they don't get to think of that. 
that's not, I mean, they can reason about why it's okay. It's different this time, Russia, 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 but they're just offloading their sense of uh, something's wrong. They're just offloading their anxiety created by that uh, cognitive dissonance. They're offloading it to Russia or Bernie Bros or, or Fox News or whatever, but it's still there. They're not thinking about it consciously, it's there in the form of their just slow and steady loss of faith and enchantment with the Democratic Party. So now it's even lower and the pressure is gonna get greater. And there's gonna, that means that like, this is a moment where fracture is really a possibility. But the problem is something has to fracture it and there isn't anything yet. But I think that this is getting me towards the idea that like a workers party might be something worth talking about in the more than just theoretical sense, in the actual medium term reality. Now beyond that, I would have to get closer to the shores of like causality to the concept to feel confident. Right now, I'm saying, I'm thinking out loud, like all of this is just my process of thought. And this has led me here. I'm gonna challenge that notion from other directions, we'll see. But this is an emerging thesis that's coming out of my conversation with myself, basically, uh, about the party and about Biden and about Biden's unique frailty and how it reflects a uniquely frail political party. Because it's, it's, it's a conflict, isn't it? The party's strong enough to drag this guy's corpse over the finish line, but the fact that he's a corpse means that at a deeper level, they're weak. And this gets to something that was the big, uh, the big Twitter own of the day, right? That's the big thing that like every day, obviously, Twitter's a hornet's nest, and every day somebody in the morning comes along and kicks it, and then that starts the whole thing off. Today's Hornets kick was somebody saying that they miss George Bush and wish he was president. And then some libs saying, oh, me too. And then people going, you fucking assholes, can you believe it? He killed a million people. And then the libs say, uh, excuse me, but he cared about, uh, about uh, rules and he was respectful and, and he was more competent. Uh, and once again, this is because they're arguing an absolute position between two things that occupy different contexts. Remember how I talked about even among liberals, their faith in the Democratic Party has been slowly weakened as its ability to offset the accumulated effects of the neoliberal crisis moment keeps going down, right? Well, here it was during the Bush years, right? And by the way, when I say uh, their, uh, their political investment in the legitimacy of the Democratic Party, that, of course, is a in miniature version, a more deeply felt version of their greater... Uh, um, uh, faith in the legitimacy of all American political institutions. So, like, if you have faith in political institutions on, like, a symbolic level, anytime your your guy loses, it causes cognitive dissonance. How can this country have produced this result? It's a country I love. It's doing something I don't agree with. Now, you can say Russia, and you can say, like, uh, like uh, the Trump voters uh, or the uh, McCain voters do, uh, Republicans, voter fraud, but and you can think you mean that, but that anxiety is still there, and it has to go somewhere. Uh, that anxiety about the state, and it goes into hostility to the institutions. It goes into the hostility towards the institutions. So they have. So like, as this is going down on their their faith in the Democratic Party, it's also going down on their faith in the entire institution of the American government. So like nine, the two thousand, the twenty, the twenty twenty, uh, the two thousand election does a big big bit of damage to their because like first you have less legitimacy in government because you don't think Bush was elected for, uh, 
uh, uh, legitimately, and then you have less faith, even if you won't admit it, you have less faith in the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party let it happen. And then they also went along with the Iraq War, which most people, I think even liberals who said they were for it, had misgivings about. Um, so the number's going down for, for both these things. Bush being in office, um, he's stressful. It's awful. In the moment, he's the worst person in the universe. But here's the thing. You're at this level of, you're a liberal with this level of faith in America's institutions, right up here. Now Trump's president, your faith, your faith level, your, your mana points in these institutions is way the fuck down here. So when you wish for Bush, what you're really wishing for is to be in a moment in time when you had more faith that America's government was going to do what it promised to do, from turn, make sure the lights go on, to making sure you don't get dirty bombed, to making sure, if you're a liberal, that homeless people have homes. If you're a conservative, that homeless people have cages. Whatever it is, whatever your conception of the good is, you have faith the government will carry it out. And that goes down as bad shit happens. And then it goes up in institutions that respond well to it, or that you perceive as responding well to it. That's why the Democratic Party went from being kind of cons uh, the party of crooks, and uh, like the, the Democratic Party in the 20s was like the party of... Ku Klux Klan members and like Irish uh, ward healing criminals. Those are the only, that was, it was all a handout. There was no ideology behind it. The Great Depression made the Democratic Party synonymous with morality for a large chunk of people. And then it went down over time as material conditions degraded because we never solved the capitalism problem that was making things bad. We only ameliorated it in the short term. So that process is going down. Now they want more, they want to go back to their, their Bush era faith in these institutions. But if Bush was here because he'd be ruling in the same way he ruled badly then, with the same interests in mind, he would rule as badly now as Trump. It wouldn't be as publicly dis degrading because now you're in a situation where because you have given up on you know, the Democratic Party or the government making justice happen in the world, you've made it, demand it that it ha has it on the symbolic level. And the symbolic level is a president who acts like a president. Having a president who is a, a debauched monster and insulting people, especially during a crisis, that is, uh, you're, you're reducing my institutional uh, faith because that's not what a leader does in my mind. Now, for conservatives, it's t entirely flipped. They have the same situation and that even though they're doing well, they're not doing as well as they used to and they know it. Their neighbors aren't doing as well as they used to, and their children are not doing as well as they expected them to. And so that, has, that creates anxiety. But they like the Republicans much more than the Democrats, and like the Democrats, they offload most of their anger onto the other party to excuse why this institution allowed this to happen. But they're still sublimating a lot of anxiety and anger. But because liberals are coming from an era where America's institutions were more liberal, were considered more liberal, like more Aaron Sorkin-y, JFK style, those cultural totems that liberals love because they in give institutional legitimacy, conservatives hate because they, think that, because they think that all that being politically correct business, being like you're supposed to be, is reified liberalism. So when Bush is noxious and awful and insulting and unbecoming of the office, they love it, and it increases their faith in the Republican Party and in American institutions.
even as their conditions are getting worse and worse, even as they're being locked in their homes for months at a time because of a botched response to a quarantine. But that's okay because they've offloaded all their anxiety about that onto their governor and the Chinese. But they still know deep down that there's a disconsonance between the world they live in and what they, sh what they think they want. How can Trump be president and this be happening? And they need to put that they need to take that excess feeling, that doubt, they need to turn that emotion of doubt into love. And they turn that emotion of doubt into love into uh, Donald Trump as a person and what he does. The liberals, uh, they turn that doubt about the fact that they live in a country that has X values in their heart, but this Y is what's happening, into hatred for his antics and awfulness. Because then they're able to direct it at that level of abstraction away from the well, level where they have not resolved the contradiction between what they think of their country and what your country does. And so it's two groups of people who have unresolved, who have not resolved, who have not confronted the basic cognitive dissonance of living in a country with certain institutions that they believe in that is not giving them the results that those in, that belief should be doing. And then they deal with that anxiety by turning it into an expressed uh, either love or hate for some scapegoat. And so that is a reified binary and there's no way to participate in it that will be productive. You have, it has to be interrupted. The process has to be interrupted orthogonally or diagonally or acutely, whatever. You cannot keep building that anti-dialectical parallel barrier. You can't do it. You can't do it. Anything about Trump, anything you do that's about Trump's appearance, about what he says, what he does, that is about his personality, reifies it. Reifies it. In either direction, whether you're a teacot going, Trump's owning the libs, or the lib going, look at this awful post. There's, and there's no way to do anything, even joke about it, be ironic about it, that doesn't reify it. So as much as we love making fun of Trump because he is objectively a hilarious figure, if you're trying to, like, I mean, obviously this doesn't apply when you're blowing off steam among friends, but if you're trying to engage constructively in a dialogue, on that level, the level of Trump will only reify this phantom spectacle where uh, secretly disordered and questioning liberals and conservatives express their unresolved conflict. So that's the thing. Don't talk about that then. I've decided the clapping is okay now. I'm not mad about the clapping anymore. I understand that it is like basically celebrating uh, that the lights are still on. I certainly understand that it's an attempt to offload anxiety about being useless during this. Like this is a physical act you can do to stand in symbolically for uh, what you're not doing, which is, you know, working in a grocery store or uh, being a nurse or something. But you accept it on that level, maybe it becomes a basis for something else. If, you're, if you don't come at it angry, if you don't come at it judgmentally, doesn't necessarily, but either way, it's going to be fine and you can deal with the results. Whether I clap or not, it's how I respond to the condition of there being clapping. But man, there is some part of me that thinks that the Democratic Party is uniquely stressed and uniquely fragile 
the symbols, the symbolic order that underrides like investment in the Democrats is completely uh, under stress in a way I don't think I've ever seen it. And uh, oh man. Jesse Ventura just seems like such a perfect synthesis of Trump and Bernie. The head and the heart. The understanding of like the spectacular level and value of politics and then the actual moral code to drive it. If it's turned into Bernie's moral code, of course. Ugh. So frustrating to think that's a possibility and it probably won't happen. But like I said, it happens in some version of the world and that version of the world rules. Somebody asked, was born apart good or bad for Europe relative to other likely outcomes of the revolution? No historical, uh, no historical trend is good or bad. A historical incident or trend either advances progress in some... It, no, I'm sorry. All historical events advance historical progress because even if it's just a period of pure, like, flat uh, non-development, you know, like where you have a sort of a, a civilizational plateau or collapse... That's still a. That's still a. Um, that is still a. Um, that's still progress in that it is part of the process of using up the matter in the closed system that is the world economy. So it's still progress. Like you're you're emptying the jug. Over it. So even if it's not getting ca caught in like a cup, you know, holder, or it's not getting caught in somewhere else to be directed into a use, it's just flowing out, you're still reducing the amount of water in the jug, even if it's not getting caught. So I guess the question is, when you look at, you're trying to judge a political, uh, or judge a historical incident, that word has two connotations, uh, moral and empirical. Like, judge it based on its dimensions and size and, and qualities, or base it on its uh, morality. And when you're talking about what anyone else does in the here and now, in the future, or in the past, or not in the future, but in the here and now and in the past, then they are, everything is fully fixed, and there's no room for a moral judgment. So when you're talking about a historical incident, you're talking about Bonaparte taking over control in, Paris, in France. And you're saying, is it good or bad? Well, it was a little bit good, like all his, uh, you mean, did it help get the jug of water, you know, the, the amount of, the amount of mass in, his, in history into the other jug of, uh, like a, a civilization that is self-sustainable because it has, it is cooperatively utilized resources to create a technological infrastructure that's sophisticated enough to create like a steady state of energy inputs, which is possible, but requires a degree of technological advancement that can only be achieved through collaboration uh, as a species. So history is the process of that jug the jug that starts off as just the matter of the earth 13 million billion years ago and this other jug which is going to be much much smaller where the, the the where where the fully automated luxury space communism is where the end state of communism is however you imagine that kim stanley robinson's colony books whatever and then you're pouring history is pouring the one jug into the other and what 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 the active mind what what the activated like moral political soul does and then what the activated political class 
nation and people until the entirety of humanity does is try to direct the one receptacle into the other as it changes shape without getting as little of the without well catching as much as possible to keep the system as efficient as possible because whatever you can't get from energy you have to get from human power which means at some level suffering and exploitation which have to be equally shared to be to share like the brain power equally of everyone who can contribute so let's take napoleon that all sounds like a that all sounds like a uh uh, uh begging the question right but no i i just use that to address the question of um was napoleon good for europe compared to other outcomes of the revolution what that means is was napoleon positive what was napoleon how much water did napoleon help keep in the jug compared to something else happening and we can say definitively that he is absolutely more progressive than most of the likely outcomes that would have happened if he hadn't intervened because you had in the directory an absolutely unviable and unstable government that's ability to con to govern was entirely dependent on its ability to exact tribute in its new imperial state which by the way it wouldn't even have been able to do without napoleon bonaparte's singular military genius in the first place to help almost sing to single-handedly win the first fucking uh the war of the first coalition almost um which gave them a huge amount of foreign currency and 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 capital to 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 to, to take back to france so that was doomed their inputs were going down uh, and they had no popular legitimacy because they were the they were the acknowledged cynical minority. They were the cynical uh, remnant of the people from the earlier battles that were originally ideological and stayed at the level of you know pure political science and then and, and virtue like the the the, Girond, the Jacobins and Girondins and whatnot. And slowly over time resolved whittled down to this group around uh the guy the, the engine of the motive the, the, the revolution where all of the uh the actual like moral uh in uh the moral sense of um the sense of moral um urgency entirely concentrated in a smaller and smaller group of people until it was basically just the community of the uh, committee of public safety everybody else was either being executed or being alienated from the project and when you're alienated from a project at a moral level you have to find a material justification so the only people left after they killed robespierre at the thermidor interaction were the ones who had accommodated themselves to the regime through uh basically being crooked being corrupt the main reason they overthrew robespierre is because they all thought they were going to be the next worst person to get guillotine for profiteering which they were all doing everybody who had any uh principles either lost to the jacobins and got their heads cut off or were the jacobins and then got their heads cut off the only ones left because everyone with morality everyone who was driven by morality by the, the french revolution as it got bloodier they had to keep making choices as to whether it was worth supporting and if you thought no it's worth supporting but it's going in the wrong direction then you had to oppose robespierre that meant death if you think no it's worth supporting but i'm gonna give up these principles it's because you're getting other justification in the form of kickback some people were getting some combination of both like danton was both 
morally opposed to the course of the uh, revolution and getting his beak wet. But I would say with Danton, he was more morally opposed because if he had been more corrupt, he would have stayed in the back and just made money like the rest of those creeps who then killed Robespierre. So the directory is just this rump of disgusting self-seekers with no morality at all. All the morality had been squeezed out of the revolution by the process of the terror. All you had were the office seekers and the crook, which is, by the way, the same thing that happened in Stalinist Russia. The exact same process happened. You either got turned away from the regime by what it was doing and exiled or executed, or you accommodated yourself and became crooked, and it lost morality. It, it happens in every system like that. Um, it happens in every system where, where a government's ability to extract surplus uh, 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 value is challenged by some sort of uh, uh, input disruption, and it, to the degree that it puts it, that it degree to response to that crisis with authoritarian control of people is the degree to which it will alienate people from believing in it, unless they are being materially rewarded. If they're the ones getting the bread then they uh, uh, believe in the regime more. If they're having the bread taken from them, they believe in it less. And eventually they'll believe in it so little that you're going to have to do something about them. So what this meant was that the, the directory was doomed. And the only people left were, of the revolutionary generation, totally useless. Guys like uh, uh, Paul Barra. Barra was like the arch... He was the, arch he was the one-man embodiment of the... Uh, Thermidorian reaction and the directory because he was a man of no principle. He was an absolutely empty bell who was able to survive the whole horror of the uh, of the terror by staying hidden. Abi Sayas, a guy who was too much of an incompetent oaf to be to be even much uh, enough of a uh, enough of a like threat to power to even bother killing during the, the during the reign of terror. Sayas got to sit the whole thing out because at that point he was so irrelevant to the process that even frickin' Robespierre couldn't even remember to, to get a, cut, cut his head off. Those were the people. That was the triumvirate that, that Napoleon joined. Napoleon, not part of that generation, young, uh, uh, vigorous, part of that group of young, uh, of, of um, ambitious minor nobles from peripheral areas whose ability to uh, engage with the world and their talents was blown up by the French Revolution. Now, they were no longer constrained by like a class system that would have made it harder for them to have their talents be expressed. Now, oh my God, they get to... Uh... Now guys like Napoleon get to uh, unleash the full uh, flower of their talents. So they love the revolution from the outside because it's given them this. And that means that they approach the question of continuing it with energy and vigor. Whereas guys like uh, Bara and Abbe Sayas are, uh, are empty, are guttered out. Uh, in fact, you could argue that, that those three people, literally the triumvirates themselves, prov provide a miniaturized model for the synthesis that Napoleon's government, takes, takes uh, that Napoleon's government carries out. So C.S. was one of the guys who got the revolution started in the first place by his uh, pamphlet about the Third Estate. You know, what is the Third Estate? Nothing. What does it ask for? Everything. That was the creed accord of the revolution. But because of his particular uh, blend of personality traits, he lost influence very quickly. 
He couldn't get in on it. Bara could get in on it, get in on the ground floor. Uh, but by the end of the process of revolution and counter-revolution and resolving towards uh, synthesis and blood and, and just, the, just the exhaustion, you had these two guys who had helped bring the revolution about and then helped send it in the direction it went into at crucial moments, both of whom are now, for separate reasons, completely extinguished. Uh, Abay Sayas, the guy who was the who had the, who was one of the founders of the revolution, and that he gave it ideas, he turned its its incohate yearnings into a vocabulary people could understand. Like the the spirit, the geist of the revolution extinguished. Then you have Bara, not an intellectual, not a guy who thought up these ideas, but a guy who caught up in the in the spring of history, grabbed some of them to use them to make action, to become part of it, and in the process is ground into, into, into moral powder by the need to stay alive, by his attachment to the material world. But he has also exhausted his abilities and his credibility, more importantly. And who comes now? A man forged by both of them. A man who only arose out of a revolution that they had made, who understands it at a level they never could because he approached it at a different point in his life and used it to different ends. He comes in, it could really have been no other way, nor should it have been. And then you, and now, now it could have been. That was like destined to happen. But the thing about history is, things are destined to happen until something intervenes, which is what history is. It is everything that happened in history, you can look back retrospectively and see a direct line of causation and argue that it could not have happened any other way. But the thing is, there are thwarted versions of that littering history. There are mirrored realities that happened because some specific thing went the other way and one of them is say napoleon dies at the uh at the um at the battle of toulouse gets he that 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 bayonet that went to his uh crotch goes a little harder closer cuts his femoral artery bleeds out um then the forces that breed the directory to bear certainly uh don't change the directory is probably less endures less because Napoleon isn't there to win the first Italian war or the first the first Italian campaign in the war of the first coalition. Uh, but even if it is, it will probably be attempt before it collapses from below. There will be some attempt at the top levels of power to redirect it to their ends. And whoever they called up, whoever they decide to pull off the bench to be the next guy, would probably have been inferior to Napoleon. Would have had less resources to draw from and therefore would have been less successful militarily. Which means that maybe the revolution ends with the restoration a decade earlier. That would have been bad in the sense that it would have been inefficient. Because you have this engine of history making in this form of the Grand Armée and Napoleon behind it. History on horseback leading an army of history with guns. And they marched through Europe and they swept feudal remnants aside. The, white, the, the blue coats of, of the French army in the early, early 18th century France or in early 19th century uh, Europe, were identical in their function to the blue coats of the Union Army marching into the South in the 1860s. It signaled liberation. Liberation for peasants, liberation for Jews, uh, and degrees of liberation for everyone, from townsmen to, guild, to, uh, to laborers to everybody, and less power for lords uh, and hereditary rulers. Even with all the death that came from that, it's hard to imagine that death wouldn't have come in a reverse in some bloody counter-revolutionary series of battles between the, uh, the, 
the powers of Europe that were going to try to carve up France's corpse if it had failed. So either way, you have thousands dead in, uh, in, a, in wars that engulf the continent. One of them leaves models of liberal governance and liberal relationships between subjects that can be built on through capitalism and then through communism, all of them interdicting with each other. That process is going to happen if Napoleon isn't there, but it'll happen more slowly. More water is going to fall out during the exchange. So yes, fifty-one. It, using the the everything is yes. Everything has a yes or no question, but it's only yes or no to a percentage of a degree. That's the way to that's the way to stop being uh, uh, frozen by questions because nobody wants to say yes or no. They want to justify it, and the fact is that's true of every yes or no question. And you can make the call if you're just able to say yes, because it's 51% one at least, and 49% of the other. That's the degree of specificity you need. And then that allows you to make the statement, and if somebody disagrees with you, you can challenge the premise, and if it turns out they're right, guess what? That was part of the 49% that you missed. Now your understanding of the principle that you were even arguing about is increased. I hope this is making sense. Now, see, the, he says the Bavarian ancestors didn't take too kindly to the frogs marching across the islands. No, they didn't. But get what happened is that the nationalism, the liberalism inculcated in Napoleonic France was mirrored in every state that they beat because everyone had the thought of why couldn't we win? Why did this regime beat ours? And the question, and the answer to that question is always, it was superior to the task. You want to ask why anybody beat anybody in a war over the long term, it's because their particular arrangement of resources and skills was superior to the task. And so the Germans and the Italians asked themselves, among others, the Hungarians, the Czechs, everywhere that army marched, asked themselves, why did they win? And the answer is because they, had, they were more prepared for the times. And so then they say, well, what was the thing? And the first like seeing it just as an army marching as an, as, a, as, a, as an enemy is nationalism. It's a nation. They've got a flag. They fly under it and they'll die for it. We don't have that. I live in the fucking uh, Prince Bishopric of Baden-Baden. You know, um, the, the Holy Roman Emperor is some syphilitic weirdo in Vienna. Uh, the only power I see is like my local uh, syphilitic riddled uh, like barrister asking for a kickback to uh, smuggle some cork into the harbor or whatever the fuck. But if we had a flag to fight and die under like the French do, we could beat them. And voila, within a couple generations of, uh, of, of Napoleon, or within a generation of Napoleon's defeat, you have fully blown nationalist movements all throughout Europe that within another, gener with another generation unify polities that had gone ununified for millennia. Napoleon single-handedly ended the 2,000 combined year-long reign of the Holy Roman Emperor, the Knights of St. John in Malta, and the fucking doges of the Republic of Venice. That's right. The Serene Republic itself. That is, that is sweeping the deck and allowing for new growth that will be more productive, even if it's just as horrible, because it's history and all history is horrible, as his defeat or non-existence because of uh, uh, happenstance would have been. Napoleon wasn't even their first choice, you know, the triumvirs. 
the guy they wanted uh, was too high-minded. He wouldn't do it. He believed too much in the revolution. Because his ambition was not as overweening as Napoleon's was, because his talent wasn't as high as Napoleon's was. They both believed in the revolution. The reason, I believe it was Hosh, uh, points that, sees that question, says no, is because he still believes in the revolution to a higher degree than Napoleon does. Why? Because his talent level is lower. Simple as that. Because he can see less value to himself in not, uh, he sees less value in him, to himself in changing the situation. Napoleon's knowledge of his own talents was such that he was able to say, yeah, revolution, good thing, but I mean, come on, look at all the blood and death. Come on. And also, I know what I'm doing. Boom. That's why it was him. Now, there's you go. The guy they wanted to, said no. Uh, if he'd said yes, if that guy had said yes, they probably would have done worse because he wasn't as good as Napoleon, would have come in conflict with Napoleon. Uh, and then, like, either Napoleon winning that conflict or losing it sets back the, the cause, you know, the cause of progress in France either way. So it's not good. Um, but that guy had less talent than Napoleon. He was less focused on the task of military power, which was the most important task at hand in France at that moment because it was fighting for its survival. And he wasn't as good. And so you say... But the thing is, and here's the, here's the uh, fundamental paradox, and this one might be a little crazy, you might not buy it. Tell me if it doesn't make sense. If he had said yes, he would have done better because he would have been more talented. So that is how you have a situation where the, the historical question is totally up to one guy's mind. But the forces of history have elided so that it could not have gone any other way. That is how you get radical subjectivity and radical free will at the level of Geist. And you have total clockwork determinism at the level of matter and space and observing reality around you and people around you. I'd like to go back on... Uh, On his show, on Ebb's show now, think about Napoleon. I mean, the guy, you know, think about him with the Roman Empire. Everyone's just trying to get to him. Uh, Warner says the American Civil War army would crush the French and uh, German armies, Prussian armies of Austria Hungary. Uh, yeah, of course they would because they fought the fucking Civil War. <laughs> I mean, there's no greater uh, uh, wheatstone to grind your fucking axe against than some one of the, one of the largest conflagrations uh, in the Western world at that point. I mean, it's very funny that the Taiping Rebellion is happening in King China at that time and killing 30 million people, and very few of us even know about it, but in the West, you don't get a bigger playpen for developing lethal skills. If the, if the Grand Army of Republic in 1865 had needed to, and been able to summon the popular support to march, like, get in boats and march on Calais, it would have been hard to stop them. I mean, they would have kicked in the rotten door of, uh, of uh, decadent Second Empire France. That's why one of the more intriguing counterfactuals in history, once again, 
not something that could have happened in our world, but with a few things go differently, could have happened in a world like ours, uh, and would have, I think, led to progress faster. We would be, in temporal time right now, 2020, we would be farther along progressively, is if Napoleon, instead of uh, uh, not recognizing Toussaint Louverture as uh, the actual power, the actual authority in Haiti, uh, if he'd recognized the reality of that instead of trying to put toothpaste back in the tube in a way that a, a man of history like himself should not have tried to do. Because if Napoleon was a little less uh, egotistical, he could have directed some of his brilliant uh, insight to the fact that Toussaint Louverture was him. Toussaint Louverture was the Napoleon of Haiti in that he was presiding over the same situation and, and demonstrating the same brilliance and carrying the same popular legitimacy because of that brilliance. And so that means there's no way to overturn that Coke bottle, the Coke machine, especially with the intervening reality of fucking yellow fever. That was never going to work if he'd recognized that reality. And he couldn't, partially because his wife Josephine was from a family of uh, uh, planters on Saint-Domingue who, uh, who wanted their plantations back. Uh, and then, like, the racism that emanated from those economic relationships. If he'd been able to recognize Toussaint for who he was, he would have made him a fucking general. And he would have fucking put guns in the hands of every man who wanted to in Haiti. And he would have put him in boats. And he would have sent him to French, Can French Louisiana. And he would have marched him through the Deep South. A military with that combination of motivation and leadership had basically never been seen uh, in the um, American context since the European invasion. Like, you literally could have had a, like, a, a, a Franco-Afro-Franco-African, Af uh, like, Caribbean hegemony there. I mean, obviously, things have to fall right a million ways for that to happen, but that is something that the given layout of, of a material situation uh, um, the, the, the layout of the material reality could have allowed that to happen so that's when we say if a counterfactual like that that's why people say counterfactual is uh, history is tricky but it really isn't if you just remember one thing when you're doing it you're not asking could this have happened to this world you're asking could this array of things if everything had frozen like everybody's where they are Toussaint's in France, or Toussaint's in Haiti, Napoleon's in France. If you could hit a stopwatch, and you could basically incept into Napoleon the idea, hey, give, give Toussaint some fucking uh, gats, and then had history start again, would it have worked? And the answer is, it could have. You could pursue it anyway. Other things could have intervened and stopped it. A, a, real, a, a bad counterfactual is one where there is no way that even if you did change people's individual minds, basically the number of people's minds you would have to change for it to win would have to get bigger and bigger. Like that's the degree to which a counterfactual is valid. One guy, if something is possible, if one guy's mind is changed or one woman's mind is changed, then that is a very narrow hinge point on history. If it requires like an entire civilization to have a different point of view on like a different value system related to the world around them, then that's not a realistic, uh, or, or for them to have you know, uh, a step where they actually have jungle, that's not a real counterfactual. So basically, counterfactual history is the fewest the number of people you would have to incept if you had like a space-time freezing machine 
uh, to make it happen. Because, of course, part of dialectical reasoning is understanding that when you say, could this have happened, you were implying, and in fact insisting, that somewhere, at some time, it did and will. So that thing I just said, that happened. There is a history where that happened. And then there are histories branching off of that where it succeeded or failed to different degrees. I am reading Schneidel's new book. In fact, Schneidel's new book, I've, I've been kind of like, I mean, now I, I think I, I'll be get to a point where I can read better. Right now I'm a little too distracted to read anything really for that long. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to get Moby Dick so I can kind of like hit the, you know, get some traction. But um, I was reading Schneidel's book before this and I gotta say, man, I honestly think that if I had had that experience that preceded this whole like reorientation without being in the middle of that book, I might not have had the moment I had because Scheidel's theory of like uh, of uh, environmental determinism, which is what it is. No historian wants to be a determinist because then you discount free will. But of course, we know that all historians are determinists if they understand their task. An under a historian who understands his task is a determinist. If you don't. It's because you're allowing a uh, subjective realm to enter into your conception of history. You're biased. So we know that all historians, all historical history is deterministic. And what Schneidel says is that the, the determining thing is, because like the biggest, broadest argument in, uh, in history is, is something determined by environment or by the culture within the environment. And of course, it's both. It's the cycle it's the it's base superstructure it's the it's the biomechanical fusion it's the dynamo of all life but one starts it one starts the process one material space confluence starts the process and Scheidel argues incredibly persuasively in Escape from Rome and I'm only about halfway done with it uh, that it's fucking environment like he basically posits that the reason that the uh, Industrial Revolution happened in Europe is because of inter-party con uh, competition between small states in the post-Roman context. And then you say, well, why did that happen? And the answer is, extract it all the way down, you could build a million levels of meaning on top of it. But extracted to the bottom, it's that Europe was too far from the steppe to be constantly threatened by, um, by nomadic warriors that presence the closest to, to, to uh, nomadic warriors makes a society more cohesive over a larger bond because it feels more threat so that's why huge empires like the, the empires that have ruled China throughout 2000 years of history in an area that's like three times the size of Europe even under air, even under conditions of much lower technology than we than, than uh, exists now it's because there were always either the, some variety of Mongol or of, 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 of a nomad, either the Mongols or, or, or the Manchu later, who would harry you until you lost power, and then they would take over until they lost power, and then you kicked them out, and then you would, the cycles of decay would happen, but they were all being, all of these dialects are being fired by the presence of steppe nomads. No steppe nomads in Europe. The closest thing to a step is the Hungarian, uh, the Magyar plain or whatever, where Attila the Hun hung around. But it's just not enough land to sustain the number of horses you would have to, to, to wage that kind of war and be that kind of society. And so that left Europe to become this petri dish of little uh, microstates growing 
and shrinking in competition with each other. And that led to a flowering of the need to compete technologically with one another. A stable uh, imperial model doesn't like uh, technological innovation that it can't control. And it can't control it if it's going to do everything it could do. It has to be in the hands of as many people as possible to find as many uses for it. Meanwhile, the Chinese emperors were banning ships with too many masts because they might go too far and upset the balance of power in China. Anyway, that's his book. And that, to me, is a greatly important, that observation, that is like the base. Because, like, ideas are useful to the degree that you can explain them. Or ideas are... Um, Useful and true to varying degrees. And one axis of, uh, of truth is to which degree you can explain it. That's the degree to which you believe in it. And that's either ineffable, like people who are ecstatic religious believers, they're having non-verbal experiences. And then there are people who reason their way to religion through written word. They're both getting there in the same, in the same way. Or they're getting the same way in the same direction. Uh... Fuck, what was I saying? Oh, but so like you've got the dialect, right? And dialectical materialism is great, but what set the conditions? That's another recursion. <coughs> and I didn't really know. I hadn't done enough of the reading. And having read Schneidel and seeing how persuasive it is, and getting it at like he, the way he lays out the level, he, he, he reasons dialectically is one of the reasons that book is so successful at convincing me. Because he starts at every level with like not saying that any ideas are in conflict with one another, that they are true to greater or less degrees. And since that's the way he reasons through the book, he never leaves you hanging. You're always with him. You're believing every level of the argument, which means that I now have that as like an intact base now. And then I can put the dialectical historical materialism on that environmental base. And the thing is, is that the suggestion goes both ways. Of course, a historically determined uh, uh, a series of events is going to come from a base of literal matter of the actual environment. Where else is it going to come from? It's the prime mover. And um, and that really like helped that set another level of, of like symbolic meaning and understanding so that when I had my experience I, I didn't have to build that. It was already there. <clears throat> and uh, that reminds me this is Something I thought of today is like an analogy about um, the difference between dialectical reasoning and the way that we are taught to think about things in schools and the way we teach each other to refer to each other over all interactions, personal, ideological, um, political, religious, social. You're doing out, you're filling out, think of um, every conversation Think of every conversation you've ever, every, every conversation you have is basically a translation between two people, right? You're translating some sentiment between one person to another, and you're using symbols to do it. Simple sentiments require simple uh, symbols. How you doing? Fine. Uh, like, I, I acknowledge you. That's, that's as many symbols as it needs. Um, but if you get more specific, it requires more detailed translation. And that can either be specific, like, description of something, uh, if you're talking about, like, helping somebody uh, change a tire or fix a, fix a radiator, but it can become uh, very complicated, uh, but it becomes complicated along an axis of, like, symbolic uh, abstraction when you're talking about ideas. So think of discussing 
trying to argue somebody like you have one question one you have one view on a question an issue somebody else has what seems to be a conf directly conflicting issue now you're going to translate across that gap my attempt to make communicate to you is basically handing you a crossword puzzle that i made and the complexity of the crossword puzzle correlates to the complexity of the thought I'm trying to get across to you. And I'm the one who builds the thing. So I'm doing my best to make these questions gettable, the way that they connect. I'm not trying to be hard. That's bad faith. I'm trying to be legible. Like if it but if it takes a lot of spaces, I'm going to have to think of a lot of clues. And i got to try my best to make the clue easy as possible because I want you, I should want you to get it. If I don't want you to get it, that's bad faith interaction. That's trying to make it harder. So you have to assume good faith for all this to work. That's the first thing you have to do. So you get the crossword puzzle from me. Now you try to, your brain is now trying, at like an instantaneous level, is trying to work out this crossword puzzle. Now say you're making it down the crossword puzzle and you got two spaces left that you can't figure out. And you just look at them and you can't, and you start getting mad, you start getting annoyed, you start getting bored, because this interaction no longer is revealing anything to you. You're, no long, you're not understanding or explaining anything anymore. You're just staring at two meaningless crossed spaces. You have lost all spirit and are purely interacting with mere matter. You have disenchanted the exchange. Now, you can dispel that by reapplying yourself to the question. Now, the first thought you'd be... Ha now, there's two ways to do that. The way that we are taught is erase every answer on the board. You didn't get the last two, so none of this is right. Start over. And now you're starting over with a self-doubt, so that even though these are all the same, they were right the first time, you have to say some are wrong. You end up writing some that are wrong, even though you kind of suspect they're, they're, they're wrong, because what well, has to be different somewhere, because it got me to the wrong thing. And that means you're making, you're compounding mistakes over here, and you're not even getting any close to the thing that you, you were so close over here. Dialectical reasoning says, once you reach that point of break where you can't get meaning, like semantic and spiritual from this thing, then you have to step back as close as possible. You got all this right. What is the nearest thing that could be wrong? If you do that, you're going to get the question answered. You're going to solve the, 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 the uh, puzzle much quicker. That means you're going to be less emotionally invested in it because you're going to be feeling less bored and less anxious, less annoyed, less patronized too. Whatever, whatever bundle of uh, interactions you brought to the bundle of emotions you brought to the interaction because of who you think you're talking to. And that means that at every level of bad faith compounds uh, the mistake in translation that initiated the disagreement. Okay, I've been going for a while. Uh, whatever we, of that which we cannot speak, we must pass over in silence. It's true. And I think the reason people just sort of take that uh, uh, phrase for granted sometimes uh, is because they think, that just means, well, duh. I mean, if I just don't say when I know things, then I'm going to be dumb. Uh, so I, then I can never say anything? No. It means both you don't have to speak of things that you don't know, but it also means you don't have to speak of things that you do already know. 
that you can whittle down your interactions to the most salient points and then grind those. And that increases clarity, increases your ability to interact with other people, increases the collective increasement, increase in our knowledge of each other and the world around us that we get from interacting. All right, so how's that? Does that make any sense? Once again, I don't really know. Yeah, no, uh, Wittgenstein is right about that. Definitions are useful, but not in motion. And thought is in motion. The, the definitions are useful in a fixed state, and you need them for that. Go pick up that hammer. But when you're moving them around in your head, you sh should abolish them as to a, the greatest degree you can. That's a little tip. All right. Uh, okay, someone says it's more grounded. Good. I think that I'm finding a way to talk about this stuff with specific examples, which is the way people are going to understand it. It's like, kind of, I blew up the top of my head, and I'm just slowly, over the course of this week, trying to catch things in a bucket, basically. Uh, it's just, a, it's all of these, and that's another thing you have to understand, is that all these processes are direct and exact mirrored copies of one another. There is no remainders. There are no remainders in the universe. Everything is part of an equation that is resolved completely. There is the remainder of the negations, but those then get negated. And then when that, and then when that uh, final bit is resolved, you have total oneness between space and time, i.e. the end of the world, the end of the universe, the end of your life, uh, and also the beginning. All right, guys. Bye-bye. See you tomorrow.